It is a great pleasure to welcome our guest today, Professor Pamela Barmash, who comes from Washington University in St. Louis. Pamela is an expert in the field, draws wide research interests across the Hebrew Bible, law, justice, rabbinic Judaism, linguistics, and the literary development of the Hebrew language. And it's a huge honor to have her with us today. Her most recent publication, I think, is the Oxford Handbook of Biblical Law, amongst many other publications, too. Pamela, you join us to speak this week on Vayeshev. We look forward to that and then having a discussion afterwards. Thank you so much for that very warm introduction, and thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this wonderful podcast series. I've recommended it to a number of my friends, acquaintances, and students, and they have responded back to me with very high praise for what you're doing. So it's truly an honor for me to be part of this. So Parshat Vayeshev is Bereshit Genesis chapters 37 to 39, And it is a start of a novella, a long extended set of interconnected episodes. And it's great for the listeners to take in hand a Torah or a JPS Tanakh or a Jewish study Bible and read the text. It is the story of Joseph as he grows from an arrogant teenage brat to a self-assured and successful leader in a foreign land. It is is a story that highlights his psychological growth accompanied by profound insights into the psychology of others, an area into which I will go into more detail later. And the presence of a novella, a long extended set of interconnected episodes, is in sharp contrast to the short episodes that make up Bereshit Genesis before it. My special interest in biblical studies is in law, and the story of Joseph often touches on law and legal issues, and I'm going to highlight them. So when we first meet Joseph in Genesis in Bereshit 37, he is, of course, arrogant and annoying. And his dreams in which his brothers and his father and mother bow down to him are very well known. His brothers, not surprisingly, are very angry. And in fact, they're so angry that they wish to kill him. And so two of his brothers, Reuben and Judah, try to find a way to save him. So Reuben makes a suggestion, and then he seems to disappear for a time, according to the narrative, and Judah comes up with another suggestion. And this suggestion is based on the type of murder that is subject to legal action in biblical law. Now, there are a number of approaches to the legal aspects of narratives in the Bible. One way is to use narratives as raw material to reconstruct the legal culture of ancient Israel so that the legal practices that are reflected in narratives, such as the novella about Joseph, can be taken as representative of what procedures were actually followed in the periods in which 
the narratives were set or were written. So the use of narratives there is as a mirror. But as we know, narrative is not a mirror of reality. Writers have a free hand in portraying occurrences to emphasize character development and plot. They reveal personal thoughts, private conversations, and secret occurrences. So another way is to understand that law and literature are profoundly interrelated. So the conventions that are included in a narrative have to bear a relationship to actual law, but they also can tell us how law was perceived. Narrative texts such as the story of Joseph can provide evidence for the elements essential to legal practice that may not be mentioned in legal text. Even more importantly, they can show us what were felt to be the inadequacies of a legal system. So in biblical law, only those cases of homicide in which direct physical contact results in death were actionable, that is, subject to prosecution and punishment. And by contrast, when a person does not die from direct assault, there's an issue. Can that homicide, can that slaying be prosecuted and punished? So for example, in Exodus 21, when someone dies by accident, it says, if the slayer, if the killer did not do it by design, but God caused it to meet his hand. And so even though the accidental killer never intended to kill his victim, there is a link between what a person does with his hands, even accidentally, and what occurred. In the book of Numbers, there is a long extended set of statutes dealing with homicide, but each of these definitions of the types of homicide assume direct physical assault. So the earlier one in Numbers 35 bases capital murder on the instrument involved, an iron tool, a stone hand tool that can kill, or a wooden hand tool that can kill. The later definition in Numbers 35 introduces the idea of intent, but it's all about physical assault, shoving someone in hatred, hurling something on purpose at someone, or striking someone with a hand and killing that person. And so here you have direct physical assault as the definition of homicide. Now, when you limit the definition of homicide to direct physical assault, it's not a sign of an inability to grasp a less direct connection, but in fact, it originates in a practical concern. If you compare the most famous case of murder in the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel, there God knows what happens. But a human court lacks direct access to the offender's thoughts, and this makes for great uncertainty. It's easy to prove that the cause of a death was unnatural when the marks of physical violence are present on the victim's body. The legal process can take such evidence with certainty, 
but less direct causation, like leaving someone in a pit in the desert to die of natural causes of thirst or hunger means greater doubt about who done it, less certainty about the identity of the offender. And so in going back to our parsha in Genesis 37, Reuven objects to his brother's plan to kill Joseph and dump him in a pit. He suggests that instead of killing Joseph first, he simply be left alive in the pit to perish on his own accord without anyone dealing the fatal blow. The text says, Reuben said to them, don't shed blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay your hand against him. So he makes a contrast between killing Joseph directly and indirectly. If they were to kill him directly, the brothers would be fully culpable. If they kill him indirectly by casting him into a pit out in the wilderness and leaving him to starve or to die of thirst or to die of exposure, they would evidently be immune from legal action. So Reuben is, in this sense, trying to get them to follow what he says. And I guess his hope, the story assumes, is that he will come by later and save his brother Joseph from the pit, or perhaps convince the brothers to do something differently. Now, even though the brothers are not legally responsible by leaving him in a pit, they may see themselves as ethically responsible. And so not in the Parsha I'm speaking on, but one, uh, a couple Parshiot later, Reuben interprets their troubles before the Egyptian official, actually Joseph in Egyptian dress, pretending not to understand them as stemming from their ill treatment of Joseph. Reuben reproaches his brothers for the responsibility they bear for Joseph's fate. And this is in Genesis 48, 22. Even though they did not directly cause his death, Reuben answered them, did I not say to you, do not wrong the boy, but you did not listen. And now his blood is being requited. So that is an aspect of the story of Joseph and his brothers that is not often highlighted or even noticed, but I think you can see here the benefit of understanding the legal aspects of the story. Let's move on to chapter 38. Judah arranges for his son Er to marry Tamar. After he dies, Judah instructs his son Onan to take Tamar in leveret marriage so that his brother Er might have an heir, but Onan refuses to attempt to impregnate Tamar and ejaculates before their coupling. After Onan dies, Judah promises Tamar that when his youngest son comes of age, he will take her in a leveret marriage. As time goes on, Judah regrets his promise because he grows fearful that his youngest son will also die like his brothers. Now, Tamar behaves passively during this course of events. She is portrayed as not taking any initiative in her first marriage, and this passivity continues during her leveret union with Onan. And further on, when Judah asks her to return to her father's house, 
and wait for his youngest son to grow up, she complies. Tamar's extreme submissiveness embodies the limited options available to women in the realm of law. She is at the mercy of others. The portrayal of her docility serves as a sharp contrast to the drastic nature of the action she must undertake to achieve justice. And the act she will undertake is startling and extreme. She must take a surprising action against Judah and risk her life. And only such an act that puts her at extreme peril can achieve vindication for her. The narrative is shaped by many elements that retard the action, and this intensifies the darkness of the backstory to Tamar's desperate act. Sexual partner after sexual partner dies, and her father-in-law's delay in bringing Tamar and his youngest son together lasts so long that his wife dies in the meantime. Tamar is sent back to her father's home, and she waits patiently for little Shelah to grow up. The length of the delay compels a hitherto passive Tamar to take action. She must take desperate action. And the narrative does not read its conclusion until Tamar is sexually intimate with Judah. Tamar's union with Judah is depicted as justified by Judah's inaction, but her vindication is still not at hand. Her justification for the extreme and seemingly forbidden act she must undertake remains unknown to the community. At the same time, Judah is portrayed as capable of acting rightly. He does try to pay the supposed prostitute, but when he believes his daughter-in-law is a prostitute, he condemns her to death. Tamar's innocence is still not revealed and the tension builds. Only when she is about to be killed for her supposed crime does the narrative reveal that the father is Judah himself. Her vindication is postponed to the last possible moment, and it is very powerful. Animated by fury and emotional agony, she seeks relief by humiliating Judah in the most extreme way. And the correctness of her act is affirmed by Judah's speedy confirmation that she is in the right. He is depicted as publicly and without hesitation acknowledging his fault. So Tamar's docility in the beginning makes a sharp contrast with the drastic act she must undertake to obtain justice. And Judah immediately admits his culpability So the limited power of Tamar is seen in how she must do something drastic. But the limited power also is Judas. A patriarch may have the right to bestow blessings and curses, yet he is depicted as powerless when one son steals the birthright from the other. His condemnation of Tamar to death is a reflection of his power, but he also has the ability to admit that she is right. Judah is a person of independent legal standing and could exercise his right in the realm of law, but Tamar could not. Like other women, she could not exercise legal rights, and so she had to engage in extraordinary means to gain justice. And so both protagonists in Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar, have suffered tragedy. 
Judah's delay is due to fear. A desperate Tamar has to undertake an extraordinary and dangerous act. And so this narrative offers a perspective on justice that's distinct from the way legal texts portray legal matters. It portrays the human drama, the incoherent and often unpredictable behavior, the strength and fragility of the human spirit. It strives for justice by exposing the truth and revealing the complexity of circumstances. Tamar has been wronged by Judah, but he is far from being an unrepentant villain. He has also experienced profound sorrow. A powerless Tamar changes her fate by extreme action and is acclaimed by the very person she humiliated. An awareness of how narrative shapes legal matters for the sake of larger narrative goals has to be taken into account, especially here when there's a contradiction between a narrative text and the legal text in the Bible. And so some might say, well, the contradiction reflects a historical development. But the possibility here is that it illustrates how a widow with few resources can obtain the security of chalitza, of leveret marriage, despite all obstacles. Let's move on to the last chapter in this parsha. That is chapter 39, and we'll do this just briefly. The focus returns to Joseph and what is happening to him in slavery. He is sold to an Egyptian official and is successful in that man's household until his success is torpedoed by the lady of the house. Joseph's enslavement grows more terrible when he is thrown into prison. We may ask, where is God in all this? One major theme of Genesis is God pulling back and leaving room for individuals to make choices. And Joseph has choices in front of him. Will he betray Potiphar and sleep with his wife? Or will he risk being punished by her? When he experiences even greater degradation, will he give up? The psychological depth of the drama is profound. And if we compare the story of Joseph to the tales in the book of Daniel, we see both similarities and differences. All those are stories about wise young Israelite men who are successful in a foreign court. Yet Joseph is taken abroad by chance, while Daniel and the rest are exiles. Joseph resides at first in a private household the way a slave might be, while Daniel and friends are captives in the imperial court. I believe that language is the way to determine the date of a text, and the Hebrew of Genesis is far different from the Hebrew of the book of Daniel. And here we have two stories that fit different eras. The first temple period, when an Israelite or Judahite might be snatched and enslaved abroad, versus the exiles and their descendants in a foreign land where they had general access to advancement in a bureaucracy if they were wise enough to take advantage of it. These insights stem from the modern study of the Bible, such as source criticism, understanding the sources that make up Genesis and the other texts in the Chumash and the Pentateuch, the literary criticism 
that was very popular starting in the 1980s, understanding how narratives tell the story. And really in the last 20 years, the understanding how law and literature fit together, bringing us insights into the story of Joseph and his brothers and of Judah and Tamar that were often not highlighted in previous scholarship. Personally, I look forward to the new insights in the timeless texts of the Bible as they are developed by scholars nowadays. Professor Barmash, thank you so much for such a wonderful whistle-stop tour through Vayeshev and your unique take and insights. I just really wondered, perhaps dwelling on some of the things that you were mentioning, how unique you see this Joseph story, this novella within the biblical tradition, and what overall do you see as its importance for us? Well, one of the ways in which the Bible differs from ancient Near Eastern texts in the culture in which the biblical Israelites lived is its focus on the relationship between human beings and God. The cosmos is a drama between human beings and God rather than the cosmos being a drama between the gods or about the gods interacting with one another. And I think that makes for a greater focus and interest in what people are doing and how they develop. Certainly one of the great things about the Joseph novella from chapter 37 to the end of Genesis is how it highlights the psychological motivations and personal growth of Joseph, of his father, and some, though not all of his brothers, and how that in some ways was found to be uh, gripping, fascinating, of great interest to the ancient Israelites. In the same way that the story of Saul and David and Solomon was of great interest to the Israelites, and stories about other individuals such as Esther and Mordechai, and others. So I think there is this great interest in both the events of specific characters' lives, but also the psychological changes and growth that happen to them as part of their life. Thank you. I know that the work of Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs has had an influence on you, and you draw on it. Obviously, this podcast and Jewish Quest has been inspired by his work and legacy. I wonder if you might share some thoughts as to how Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs's work has impacted you and continues to, to impact. Well, I'm sorry to say that I never met him in person, but I do feel that in a profound way, I know him well, because I have read his books many times over. And so there's so much to be learned from Rabbi Jacob's spiritual journey, personal journey, intellectual fearlessness, as well as his profound humanity. And I hope that in my scholarly work and in my work as a rabbi, he has inspired me 
to be fearless in asking questions, to be bold in making insights in Torah. And so he's really someone that so many of us who are scholars have been deeply influenced by. And he is someone who was interested in all areas of Jewish study, whether it was the Bible, the Torah, the responsa, modern Jewish thought. And I think that kind of Renaissance man ethos is something also that all scholars of Jewish studies need to keep in mind and to try to replicate as best they can in their own study and teaching and writing. Professor Barmash, Rabbi Barmash, thank you so much for joining us today, for your scholarship, your guiding us through Vayeshev. For everyone that has enjoyed today, of course, you can read more of Professor Barmash on thetorah.com and please continue to spread the word on Between the Lines podcast and we look forward to welcoming you uh, back. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about the exciting content that we have for you at our mothership at jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.